So, you were in a cult. Unfortunately, you weren't the first, nor will you be the last. You have nothing to be ashamed of for being taken in by someone in this way. I was too. Cults are remarkably hard to recognize from within the cult, and generally you need to escape it and distance yourself to really begin to be able to see the influence of the cult. Unfortunately, they are difficult to recognize from the outside beforehand, because sometimes the information you might need to have known had not been discovered yet before you had joined, or even that you were drawn in by others, or perhaps you were there before the cult behavior really even kicked off. And many of us argue with ourselves, too, about it afterwards, wanting to doubt that we were in a cult even after we left, because we don't want to see ourselves as blind or gullible. There's a lot of guilt sometimes. Guilt that you left your religious community. Guilt that you could have been so blind to what was going on. But that kind of thinking, be it guilt or denial, you'll just have to avoid, because nobody Nobody chooses to join a cult, knowing full well it is a cult. So you have no reason to feel guilty, or even to deny it. This isn't the first time that I've come forward on the subject. The last time I was involved in a video with ex-cult baby about heathen cults. Like it's a thing, there are heathen cults, and some are large and some are small, but they're all dangerous in their own way. So I'm here to discuss cults and heathenry. This video is not about a single cult, but about several cult trends in heathenry that have given rise to several cults and will again, because I really only want to have to say this stuff once. If I tailored it to a single cult or a different one, I'd end up having to do this again, and that's not really my purpose. Cults come in different shapes, sizes, and forms. They can be long established or just starting out. They can be large, national, or even international phenomena, or small groups of only a handful of people. Regardless of their size or popularity, though, any cult is dangerous. My experience with the cult mentality is firsthand. I was involved in what I would consider a cult. The group seemed normal, at first anyway. Like-minded heathens getting together for religious ceremony, for fellowship, every now and again. It was organized by a leader, a swell-seeming guy, who seemed to have the kind of plans that you hear about so frequently in the heathen community. Build a community, buy land, host heathen stuff. So we began to get together and make a group. It was all so normal in the beginning, 
It's hard to pin down where and when things changed along the way. But I began to overlook things, though, and ignore warning signs. You see, I was invested. I even helped further the group along because I was, for at least a year, the priest for the group. So what warning signs did I ignore? Well, there was a running joke, if a joke is what you want to call it, that the leader was a jarl, a king as it were, or at least I thought at the time it was a joke. Something as small as that was a warning sign that I ignored. But it is things like that which were likely to be a power trip to susceptible people. Another warning sign was that the group changed and all of the rituals began to be held at the leader's property when it had been something that rotated to various locations before. Before that point, the leader was merely the person who had posted the invitations to the meetups and everything from planning to the ritual itself was handled by those who were hosting and the priest. After this, as the permanent hosts, the leader set the timetable and the agenda for, well, everything. And that may not seem like much of an issue on its own, but it exacerbated several of the other issues. You see, this gave the excuse for work days for people to go and help out at the property and get the religious space up to snuff. Not too much of a warning sign, right? Except it was a slippery slope there. You see, it didn't stop when the religious space was finished. I'd only gone to one or two of those because I'm not inclined to give up both weekend days when I have my own yard work to attend to. Before I knew it, the work days for creating the ritual space actually did morph into yard work. They were anything from gardening at the leader's garden, to painting their garage, to cleaning their home, to building their chicken house. All of those are literal examples, and the leader would comment about who made it to work days and who didn't make it, keeping track of the amount of people who came to them and which people came and when, and almost like some kind of scorekeeping. Another warning sign was the nonprofit status. My initial assumption was that the group was in the process of filing for nonprofit status. I was initially told the process was forthcoming soon, and I didn't question it. However, somewhere along the line, they started letting people believe that they were already a nonprofit, and it kind of became assumed that they were one, until they outright began to tell everyone that they were one. But it wasn't a nonprofit. It wasn't filed away with the IRS. It didn't even have bylaws. Another warning sign was money. Money would change hands to buy trinkets from the leader as a way to supposedly fund the group. But that money, I never asked where it would go. Instead of asking or wondering, I assumed the best. But that money was appropriated by the leader of the group to recoup the costs of putting on events. All of it, untaxed, probably. 
And there is a certain level of which that is fine. I'm not saying that there's something wrong with recouping losses, but when you add up the amount of people buying trinkets, they weren't just recouping losses. They were raking in a substantial side hustle. Another warning sign was that people would get pulled aside privately for private conversations with the leader. In and of itself, seems absolutely ordinary. In these conversations, he would tell them individually how important they were and where he would share his personal vision for heathenry with them. This was a later development, so it never happened to me, but it happened enough that I began to notice it happening and afterwards pieced together that this was, in essence, planting seeds not unlike grooming. In the cult world, this is oftentimes called love bombing. All of this came to a head for me when I saw something I couldn't ignore. The king joke, or as I assumed at the time it was a joke, it became real. It came time for Yule, and at the gathering everyone was having a, a grand time. Then all of a sudden a bunch of people began to give oaths of fealty to the leader of the group. As their king, their jarl, and, mind you, not just adults, but children, too. But to make it worse, the group leader just let them do this. And the seriousness with which he took those oaths and praised them for it, well, that only encouraged others to make similar oaths or even one-up the ones who had come before them. Next thing you know, people were tripping over themselves to swear their fealty, this had never happened before at the gatherings, and it, it, it shook me to my core. I left and began to probe and question. But the more I probed, the more I questioned, the worse things became. There were worse things uncovered by far, not necessarily the doings of the leader, all of them, but of those close to him as well, but which were hushed up, covered up. Every single person that I questioned had experienced something different, and it all began to fill in the pieces to a terrible puzzle. The finished picture was all too clear. My religious group was a cult. I had joined a cult. I had helped prop up a cult. I had given my time, effort, and energy to a cult. About half of us left that group after we began to piece it all together. We confronted the leader and gave them the option to change, to rectify the situation. And, of course, they didn't, and we haven't looked back since. But within this story, these warning signs I ignored there are commonalities to other cults in heathenry. It is common in heathen cults to have a structure where there is a leader. Heathenry also, with its penchant for antiquity, loves to fashion itself with lords, kings, jarls, and other trappings of medieval nobility. 
add in oaths of fealty or hierarchy of that nature or thraldom or servitude or serfdom or any other things of this sort and you've dipped into cult territory this is the kind of social and behavioral control that cults use a huge red flag that I see oh so often is when people claim some kind of unbroken lineage or unbroken tradition. This gets claimed every now and again, and I've run across it a few times when a person claims that they learned their heathenry from their family, a family that is usually conspicuously absent, and that their family somehow managed to not be converted to Christianity and also maintain their untainted heathen traditions for the past thousand years. Well... <laughs> yeah, no. That's a huge red flag for cult bullshit. It screams cult because it's a method to try and gain influence by controlling the flow of information because the person is setting themselves up as the sole arbiters of the right and correct way that things should be done. Money is also a huge red flag. If you don't know where the money is, and what it's doing, and how much of it there is, and if that information isn't able to be delivered by a third party that is unconnected to the person taking the money, well, yeah, that money is gone then, and it has disappeared into the cult leader's pocket. So you think you're going to get a hoff or a haul? <laughs> no. That's going to buy the cult leader's cable bill. And you can be damn sure it isn't going to be properly taxed either. This ties in to the next one somewhat. But a non-profit organization, to be a non-profit, it needs to be registered as a corporation in the state that they are, and it also needs to be registered with the IRS. So you'll be able to search up the status very easily. It gives the address for it, the people who filed the paperwork. It's all really easy to search for. If they aren't a nonprofit, you really shouldn't be giving them money at all, or even buying things from them because there's no accountability for that money. And don't just take for granted that it's a business. Look it up. It's not a business or a nonprofit until it is registered. For that matter, accountability is essential in any group. Having one leader or only a couple of leaders is a huge red flag. What is the old adage? Power corrupts. Well... Who do you go to if the leader is the issue? I'm a big fan of groups having bylaws and those bylaws being public for the group. This is standard procedure, even in small clubs, like even clubs like little softball clubs or Society for Creative Anachronism, SCA clubs. These have bylaws for group procedures and accountability. For goodness sakes, every Christian church has bylaws. It's part of being a church. It's a requirement for becoming a nonprofit. 
the fact that most people are unaware that churches have bylaws too is a is a testament to the stability of the Christian churches that nobody near you ever had to break out the bylaws to see who would be held accountable for the bad stuff going down. The only reason a heathen group wouldn't have bylaws would be if the community leaders were too incompetent to make some, or if the leaders deliberately wanted to keep things unofficial because it removes all accountability. In either case, whether it be nefarious or whether it be incompetent, that's not a group that you want to be following. It's not a leader that you want to be following. Another trend in heathen cults is folkism. Yes, folkism. It's part of being a cult. It's one of the good hallmarks for it in heathenry. The psychology here is important because you have to think from a self-centered perspective. And from that self-centered perspective, folkism isn't a religion of hate, but is instead seen as a religion of love, in particular self-love. As ridiculous as it sounds, it's a tactic to make people feel special. If you can sell people on the idea that they are descended from the gods, that they were born special, that they're chosen ones, coming from a chosen line on a mission to continue that chosen line. Well, if you can sell them on that, you have them. Folkism is a pleasant lie to those people because it allows them to have one special thing that no one could ever take away from them, no matter how downtrodden they became, because it was born into them as innately as the color of their skin. It is an attempt to gain favor by teaching them to love themselves as a special individual. It's no wonder that it's basically impossible to convince them of the error of their ways, because in doing so, you are depriving them of their perceived specialness. It is a cult tactic, and it creates lifelong followers. It's also a double-edged sword, though, because it's isolating, too. Because from anyone else's perspective, it isn't about how special they are, but about how these folks are highlighting how unspecial everyone else is. This is exclusivity, and it essentially breaks down to race. So while they're over there peddling pride, that pride is laced with disparity and racism. Us versus them and othering is another tactic that heathen cults use. Well, really, it's a general cult tactic, but heathen cults as cults fall into it. Society isn't out to get you. The Christians aren't out to get you. Nobody is out to get you. We're so small, we're not even on their radar. We are not a threat to them. But the cult could outline an enemy, imagined or otherwise, and this enemy could be Christianity or Wicca or liberals or homosexuals or people of color, and this enemy is billed 
as the other, the enemy, and as such, this threat and this specter of this enemy is used to maintain discipline. Nothing unites like having an enemy. Conversion to heathenry is pretty isolating already. There's a lot of family-based trauma that many people go through in converting away from Christianity to heathenry. Cults prey on the fact that family ties have been cut and make themselves out to be a new family. They try and fill the void, and they will try to fill it in with themselves in exclusion of all others and they will seek to purposefully isolate people further from their friends and family to make the cult their only refuge. It is some predatory goddamn behavior. But you're not alone. We can have friendships and relationships outside of our religion, and we can talk to others outside of it. Being a heathen doesn't make us all against the world and it doesn't make the world all against us. As a close friend of mine says, we are stronger together. In most cults, heathen or otherwise, there is a general inability to criticize the leader, and that is a pretty common hallmark. Those who do are pushed out, vilified, and this wraps back to accountability. If you aren't able to criticize people in charge when they are doing wrong, you should probably consider it time to move on. Another fairly heathen or pagan-specific problem would be problematic rituals and the absence of ritual consent. Folks, we're new to paganism. It isn't as though a new person is going to know what the ritual entails. If you aren't explaining rituals beforehand and getting consent and understanding about what is going to occur and how and why, that is whack. As far as problematic stuff goes, like harming oneself or others in ritual, that's crazy too. Any of that problematic stuff, be it harm or dosing people or anything, like, it's a pretty broad umbrella of harm here, but it's cults, and crazy stuff goes down in cults. But you really must be in a group that tries to achieve consent, consent and understanding for what is going on in the ritual. These are absolutely essential. Another thing that ends up happening very often in heathen cults is trying to trade labor as a way to increase one's status. It happened in the one that I was familiar with, and I've heard of it happening in a few others. Watch where your labor goes. I'm not saying don't donate time, but think about who is benefiting from your work. 
Is it public? Does someone own this? Are you painting someone's garage? Or are you carving god poles? There's a huge difference. So weigh it by who benefits from this. In the end, if any of this sounds familiar, you should probably sit down and honestly go through the BITE model for your religious group. B-I-T-E. It's talking about control, behavioral, informational, thought control, emotional control. If you go through that model and look at all of the points on it and make sure that you as a congregant aren't being taken in or having the wool pulled over your eyes, you should watch out for signs, warning signs, to make sure that your group isn't taking a turn towards these things because it's all too common. And if you are a leader of a group, you yourself should push for more accountability in your group. And you yourself should push for your group. If you don't already to have bylaws, make them. And some measure of official structure. Because even if you are a good non-culty person, you should take steps like this because they are a bare minimum. A congregant of a group without structure and accountability should also push for it. And you know what pushback on that basic thing of accountability or bylaws would mean. If your leader pushes back on that, you're in a cult. If it seems suspicious, ask about it and ask others besides the leader about it. Investigate and probe those thoughts. We get these feelings for a reason and you don't need to ignore them. And my hope is that someday we'll get beyond some of these things. But until then, we just need to remain vigilant and we need to all strive for a better heathenry. I would like to give credit where credit is due. My intro music is Call of Valhalla by Anton Shiloh, and I added in some of my horn blowing as well. So if you liked this video, like, subscribe, share, do whatever it is that people on YouTube and podcasting do, and I hope that you tune in another time.